I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. It's out! The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga is now available everywhere books are sold. This is the book for every yoga teacher, studio, and practitioner who wants to incorporate an inclusive practice to yoga. It's available on my website, laraland.us, and everywhere books are sold. If you're loving this podcast, you are going to love this book. Another really exciting one, everyone. This, I mean, why didn't I think of this before? But this is just kind of how this podcast is rolling out with deeper connections, people coming to me, ideas coming. And boy, we have a great guest today. I have on today, Elizabeth Guthrie. And Elizabeth is the founder of Herbal Somatics. She's a clinical herbalist, certified aromatherapist and yoga teacher with a PhD in natural medicine with a specialization in naturopathic psychology and a master's of public health in functional nutrition. Uh, Elizabeth, not a high achiever, right? (laughs) She talks about some other courses she's taking in our conversation today. They are the best-selling author of The Trauma-Informed Herbalist and hold multiple other certifications from conventional and traditional schools. That is true. Elizabeth helped create research for UAB's Integrative Medicine Clinic, teach practitioners online, and work as a wellness practitioner in the unseated Mice Cook territory in Alabama. I might have gotten that pronunciation wrong. You will have to tell me, Elizabeth. Elizabeth's personal experience has led them to begin studying trauma and its effects on the body and mind. Now they help others to learn how natural wellness and somatic herbalism practices can be safely implemented as part of a trauma recovery journey. Elizabeth and I talk about the power of tea, its impacts on our senses. We talk a lot about nature, what nature can do for us, and also um, ways to connect to the land. We talk about polyvagal theory, which is something I've been wanting to get into on this podcast and I have on my list to delve into more in this coming year. And we talk about the starting points for herbs, like where can you start from if you're not sure how to get into this herbal thing, what are some basic herbs you might start with, start experimenting with, how to titrate your use and pace yourself on this healing wellness journey. So great episode. There's a lot in here. Elizabeth is very knowledgeable and I just know you're going to love this. So here we go. Well, hello, Elizabeth. I am so glad to have you here. Thank you for reaching out to me about this podcast. Yes, I'm, I'm really honored that I've been able to come on here and work with you. 
Yeah. You know, when you, when you reached out, I think we connected first on Instagram. I was like, why didn't I think about this before? (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, now, wow, I'm overwhelmed by like the world of people who work in with herbs (laughs) and plants and plant ID. As you know, I have dipped my toe into it. (laughs) And, you know, I, as you mentioned before we started recording, I have that forest therapy certification and mindful outdoor guiding. So I do use a lot of nature immersion and sit spot in my work and connecting with the non-human living world. But and so many, you know, folks in that space that I've spoken to are deeply in touch with the trauma of this world. That's kind of interesting, maybe through like sensitivity of plants. There's a connection there. Yes, I think it's hard to turn your focus to nature, to the plants and to the trees, and not feel that undercurrent of everything that's that's happening and the way that things are shaping around our environment. So I do think that there's a lot of that that comes into play. And anytime that somebody kind of slows down, those are the moments where we begin to be able to look around us and see hurt and the pain that's being caused in this world. And I think that's why a lot of people struggle to want to slow down. They don't want to feel that they don't, it feels overwhelming. It feels overwhelming to kind of acknowledge that trauma. I'm totally already getting off the topic. No, this is good. I didn't expect to start here, but I think it's actually, this is beautiful and important. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is because one of the big things that we do when we're looking at the trauma that we have or at healing more of a collective community type trauma, one of the things that we have to do is find ways to slowly but surely increase our ability to sit with people in what they're what they're dealing with and mm-hmm. and not dismiss it, truly have a presence in it. And when you begin connecting with nature, you begin practicing that in an environment that feels safe enough to to acknowledge it bit by bit. Mm. Yeah. I wonder what's coming to me is the way like it feels that the natural world can hold that. Yes. Yes. In a way that sometimes as you're expressing like human other humans can't, right? Like it's just sometimes it's too much for other people. Yes, it is. And so there is that give and take, right? We can learn how to hold more of the collective trauma that's happening on the planet through being in nature. And at the same time, the plants around us hold space. Nature can hold space for us when we intentionally go and with that that mindset of I'm going to just be here now in this present moment and slow down and see what comes up. Yeah. Yeah, I found that going out into nature in times of grief or dysregulation has just been so settling for me, Um, and I know it is for so many other people. I wonder if you might share a little bit of how you came to that. I know from your amazing book that we're definitely going to shout out to everyone and link in the show notes that... um, that you have a background as a 911 dispatcher was that yes. was that before you, before you became an herbalist and um and you know i was hoping you might share a little bit about that that experience my my husband is training to be an EMT and oh. we've had some discussions on this podcast about 
secondary trauma and first right. responders. So I, I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience in that world. Absolutely. So I actually grew up with around people who who worked the land, grew herbs, grew plants. My mother and grandmother both have amazing herb gardens. Yes. <laughs> so I kind of grew up around it. And my mom had fibromyalgia when I was a kid. And along with some lifestyle adjustments, some nutritional changes, she used supplements, herbal supplements, to help her overcome that. So she hasn't had fibromyalgia pain in almost 20 years at this point. So it really impressed upon me as a young person, like, okay, plants, plants are a thing, plants work. (laughs) But my real introduction into natural medicine was more from an energy healing standpoint. And I was really interested in Reiki and the chakras and that kind of thing. But also being in Alabama and being in Florence, Alabama, as a young person, I did not know that people had careers in things like energy work and herbalism and things like that. So when I ended up out in the real world looking for a job, I knew I wanted to help people. And I had a friend who worked for an ambulance service. And the ambulance service ran the medical dispatch for the county I was living living in at the time. <laughs> And so I actually got on, I started 911 dispatch as just a medical dispatcher. And I loved it. I felt like I was helping people. I really felt like I was making a difference. But then because of short-term budget concerns, I still to this day think this was a mistake, but they merged the medical and the police dispatch. And so I ended up having to train for police calls and a lot of the more traumatizing aspects. Uh, For me, it was more traumatizing because I felt like I had less control. With medical calls, I kind of knew the rhythm. I knew what needed to happen. I knew we were getting people to them. When you get into more of the law and order type things, there's a lot of stuff that is a lot more chaotic. And it, it was very difficult to work with. But the real trauma for me occurred when I ended up in a relationship where my partner was physically as well as emotionally abusive. And so I would have that happening in the afternoon and then I'd have to go work 911 police calls at night, listening to other people going through similar things. And And at this point, I wasn't using herbs as a profession per se. Like I was studying them. I was really fascinated because, of course, moving into a bigger city, I had found out people do this for a living. (laughs) And I was really interested in beginning to really kind of study it from a more clinical standpoint. And I was using herbs, I was specifically using rhodiola, because I would work out. And then I would use rhodiola because it can help with the post-workout recovery. And I loved it. I felt great. I had the energy until I experienced my firsthand trauma that coupled with the secondary trauma for non-woman dispatch. And then I ended up not being able to take rhodiola. It would give me panic attacks. So that's what set me on this path of like, what happened? Why did this occur? And of course, the, the natural response that I think a lot of people have when they've gone through something extremely distressing or even traumatizing they begin to feel like their body is broken. Something is wrong with me. 
And that was where I started. But the more I studied and the more I got into the work, and of course, then ended up with my master's and PhD, I've ended up in a place where I realized that the body has these responses because it's protecting us. And the reason that rhodiola did not work for me after my trauma is because I ended up in a different nervous system state. So it's not that I was broken. It's not that, that I couldn't ever take that herb again. But when I was dealing with the trauma and the aftermath, that particular herb was not what my body needed then. And it was trying to tell me that through the panic attacks. And I think that's something that, that really got me fascinated with herbs help on body, mind, and spirit levels, right? We have the physical components, the physical constituents of the herbs that can help the body to rejuvenate. It can help to send the right signals to the body to help it work better and all that. We have the mental, psychological, and emotional side of things where the herbs can help on that front. And then we have the more etheric side where it's more of a spiritual connection with the plants. And so if you find the right plants for you, if you find the right herbs, then you will have an easier time healing. It doesn't mean it's an instantaneous thing, but it does make it easier to heal as you're trying to find what that new normal looks like. I love how you explain that, like all the different levels yeah. <laughs> um, or different spheres yes. that the plant touches. And it's so interesting because I was wondering, the thing I was getting to when I first introduced you is just how that world, it's it's honestly overwhelming for me because there's so much technically to learn right, right. about the plants and of course, you know, dosages and which ones can have reactions, right? right? And combining plants and then the individual that you're working with, right? Um, because each plan is reacting differently with that person and not just that person, but that person at that moment exactly. in their lives. Mm -hmm. So there's all this technical knowledge. And then it seems like there's also like an intuitive something where, you know, we're, we're drawn to a certain plan. Right. Right. There's so many different aspects to it. And the beauty of herbs is, yes, there's a lot of contraindications you have to consider. If you're on a lot of pharmaceutical medications, you probably want to be working with a clinical herbalist or a functional doctor who's trained in herbalism, that kind of thing, in order to find the right combination. But for most people, you can go to the grocery store and pick out a tea, and that can be a really easy place to start. I love that. Yeah. You don't have to go too deep into the clinical side of things, which of course I love to do. But for anybody that's listening and you're a little overwhelmed by it, just know that like you can even just start with a cup of tea. Yeah, that's definitely going to be one of my questions and something <laughs> to get to is like where, you know, for those of us that want to like just start getting into this world of herbs, like where would be a good place? Right. I love that. We can, like tea seems very accessible. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of the, the nervine herbs that are very helpful for your nervous system that are found in like the relaxing and stress relieving teas that are available. I have a friend named Ruth Shelton. She goes by the Empirical Herbalist and she has this amazing holy basil tea 
oh no, I can't, I think it's called Tulsi tea on her website. <laughs> um, but it's okay. just this amazing tea and it's rose and holy basil and a little bit of cinnamon. It's very rich. It's very warming. Mm. And just sitting with that and just having a cup of that and smelling this, right? It's bringing in scent as well as taste, as well as the feeling of the warm cup. All of those things can help us to come back into this moment and just check in with ourselves and see like, hey, how are we feeling? How are things right now? That's fantastic. All of our senses are engaged. Yes. We know that, you know, being in touch with the senses brings us into the present moment. And when we're ruminating, often, if we are in a, you know, safe as possible space, coming into present can be very soothing, you know, not going into the what ifs of the future or, um, replaying past memories. Yeah, I could really feel out the warmth of the tea and and those different smells. And I know for me, just learning to let my tea steep. <laughs> a 20-year process. Yes, yes. It, like that is a lesson of slowing down that like it's this thing that you can't just have it right away. Right. You can, right. but yeah. It, it ends up being a little better if you give it a few minutes. <laughs> With the practice, you know, and uh, yeah. And when I can't even wait for that, then I know that's signaling. Okay. Right. <laughs> you're in a little bit of a rush. So you- oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, just you're in a little bit of a rush. I, I know that's a signal. I'm in a rushed state. Right. Right. Yeah. It's something that you said a, a moment ago is safe as possible space. And I love that. And, and you mentioned this in your book, the idea of almost like relative safety. Like it's not like everything's going to be safe all the time. It's not going to be perfectly safe. But one of the things that herbs do for us when we are feeling like, gosh, I just can't quite settle enough. A lot of the times if you find herbs that you like, if you find the right kinds of teas that you enjoy, then you can use them to emotionally, right? There's like a a scent memory connection and a taste connection to emotionally feeling like, okay, I'm safe enough in this moment to just allow a little more breath in. But there's also constituents in the teas, right? There's different antioxidants. There's in things like lavender, you have linalol and linalol acetate. There's different constituents to them that can actually signal to your nervous system, hey, it is okay to let the guard down just a bit. It's almost like another tool to allow just a little bit more space, just a little bit little bit more of that sense of safe enough. I totally agree. And as you're speaking, just like a sigh, <laughs> I felt come through my body mm-hmm. and certain scents and memories are coming to me of, you know, being called to different tastes and scents of teas at different times and how they've settled my body. One thing you talk about in your book, which I think is so important and so beautifully stated is how you knew it almost seemed like you knew immediately and instinctively that the things that were working for you, you know, for easing the impacts of the traumas that you went through would not necessarily be the same and for others. And you really urge herbalists and other folks in the healing profession not to assume that, you know, just because they've had trauma that they know everyone's trauma. I absolutely stand by that. And that's, I loved the trauma trainings that you do, the trauma sensitive yoga trainings, because a lot of the times people think, well, I've been through trauma and therefore I know how to fix this. 
I know the tried and true methods that worked for me. And the reality is, is that everybody's experiences are different. And everybody's nervous system is in a little bit of a different place. And therefore, it can take different things for different people to find that sense of relative safety. It can take different things to cue to the nervous system, hey, like this is a place where we can sit with our grief, our stress, our trauma, whatever's coming up and allow ourselves to process a little bit and then come back and and be okay. And that's one of the reasons that I've really gotten to where I love to talk about polyvagal theory with herbs. Oh, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) I know our listeners will love a little polyvagal theory. (laughs) Yes. So uh, for those of you who maybe haven't heard about polyvagal theory in the past, this is a system that was uh, a theory that was created by Dr. Stephen Porges. And what was fascinating to him was that there were certain signs that the body had that indicated that the vagus nerve was active and it meant that somebody had resilience. But there were also certain signs that indicated the vagus nerve was active that could indicate that somebody was about to struggle. They they weren't as resilient. There, There could even be other issues like real severe concerns. And so he called this the vagal paradox, I think is what he termed it. And so he tried to understand why signs that the vagus nerve was active might have an opposite outcome. And that's where he came up with polyvagal theory. It means multiple parts to the vagus nerve. And in polyvagal theory, there are three nervous system states. Now, there's a lot more nuance. (laughs) For the sake of time and the fact that this isn't some sort of like deep dive, just know that there is nuance. There's, There's blended nervous system states. There's a lot of other things that can go into play. But the main three nervous system states are the ventral vagal, the dorsal vagal, and the sympathetic. The ventral vagal is that calm, connected state where we feel ready to have conversations with people. It's that rest and digest place where the body can heal. Dorsal vagal is a collapse. It's a shutdown. It's almost where the energy has just completely left your body and you could just stare at the wall for hours. You also have the sympathetic state, which is the fight or flight response. This is the I'm either going to punch it or I'm going to run. The energy is there. There's a lot of of buildup, jitteriness, so on and so forth. And so we have these three states, the ventral vagal state being kind of what a lot of people say we aspire to. But the reality is, is that we move in and out of all three of these states on a regular basis. So like right now, as I'm sitting here and talking with you, Lara, like I am I say I would be somewhere blended between ventral vagal, feeling kind of connected, feeling the flow, but also there's a little bit of sympathetic. I'm a little Mm. bit more, I won't say hypervigilant, but I'm a little more aware. I'm paying attention to the exchange. I'm thinking kind of faster than I normally would. (laughs) And so there's this, Mm. this blend between the sympathetic and the ventral vagal states. We can also have moments where we go into the more dorsal vagal response, sitting around with that cup of tea. Maybe we get into a bit of a daydream. 
Maybe we're thinking about something that happened that was lovely a few weeks ago that the T is making us think about. That can be a little bit of a dorsal vagal state. All of these states allow us to feel the full spectrum of the human experience. Mm. But once they become overwhelming, that is where we have to say, okay, what can we do to help us settle back to a place that doesn't feel as overwhelming? And there are herbs that can help with those. There are different herbs that can help with these different states. But I also want to caution that like, I like I have a list of the different herbs that I use for different states, but it's also the starting point. Because like we were just talking about, everybody's body is a little bit different. Everybody responds a little bit differently. And therefore, these are more like starting points, right? If I'm looking for herbs that help me to feel soothed and relaxed, I'm thinking things like chamomile, lavender, catnip, very calming, soothing herbs. Those are going to be for that fight or flight sympathetic state. But not everybody has the same response. For instance, valerian, which normally we think of as like a sleepy time herb. It can feel really relaxing, very soothing. But for some people, valerian actually wakes them up and can even make them feel more jittery. So in that case, valerian's probably not the right herb. And the same thing can be said for that dorsal vagal shutdown state, that place where things are very, is, there's almost like a numbing sensation that can come with it, that collapse, there's no energy left. And that's where things like rhodiola could be helpful. Remember, I mentioned rhodiola did not work for me. But that's because a lot of my trauma response lives in that fight or flight sympathetic state. And the energizing feel to the rhodiola exacerbated that. But for somebody who's in the more dorsal vagal collapse and shutdown, where there's mm -hmm. not as much energy, the supportive energizing feel of rhodiola in the right circumstances could actually be very helpful. And so the important thing here is play with some stuff, kind of explore, keep the curiosity and pivot where you need to. I love that. Super, super helpful. And thank you. I know people want to hear the names of those herbs. <laughs> I, and I, I know you put the caution. It's a starting point and we have to test them out. Just like in yoga, there's not this pose that might be calming for me might not feel calming for you. Exactly. So I love that. But I do think it's great for us to hear some of those names if we want to start experimenting. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways that you can do this. For those of you who maybe aren't interested in keeping jars of herbs around your house, the grocery store method, right? Going and finding some teas that you like could be a great place to start. If you do find yourself being drawn to trying out some individual herbs, starting out with things like rose, holy basil, the lavender, the chamomile, even catnip in some situations. Catnip's great for kind of like a soothing, sleepy feel. I know we all use it for our cats to get them super excited. But for mm. humans, it actually has like a very calming, soothing effect. And even peppermint can be a fantastic yeah. one, especially when nervous digestion is involved. Yeah. And digestion being one of the things that can get really off in connection with trauma. Maybe we you can speak to some of those. We know that 
Um, and you mentioned this in your book that trauma can really tax our immunity. Yes. And so it can impact our autoimmune system. It can also cause pain, quote unquote, unexplainable right. pains, stomach issues, digestion. Are there some go-to herbs for, for those impacts? Yes. So there's all kinds of different aspects to this. So we've already kind of talked about the nervous system. And that's really kind of what you expect when you're talking about trauma. We talk a lot about the vagus nerve, the nervous system in general, the brain. But the other two body systems that I talk about in the Trauma-Informed Herbalist book are the immune system and the digestive system. And these three systems, the nervous system, immune system, and digestive system, are the three systems that are most frequently disturbed. There are other systems in the body. There's all kinds of other stuff that can go on. But those are the three most common ones that we see kind of struggling after somebody's been through a long amount of stress or a trauma, that kind of thing. Digestive system herbs. <laughs> My brain just was like, <laughs> make it fancier than that. But it's digestive <laughs> system herbs. <laughs> There's uh, several of them out there. And the big ones for me, tend to be ginger, fennel, and peppermint. Some people really love peppermint. Some people really love ginger. Very small amounts of fennel in a tea. You don't want a lot because it can be very bitter in large amounts, but very small amounts of fennel in a tea can kind of add some of those soothing sensations. And everybody's a little bit different. So I would encourage you, if you love ginger, sip on some extra ginger tea and see how that does for you. If you love peppermint, go that route. There are other aspects to this that go beyond the herbs, right? One of the things that I, I struggle to just be like, here's the plants, be done with it, because this is such a holistic conversation. And one of the biggest things we can do for digestion is to be eating foods that have the prebiotics that can be very helpful to create the right kind of gut microbiome balance. Look into fermented foods, if that's something that you're into. I talk about Sandor Katz in the book, who is one of my favorite fermentation authors. There's also Pascal Baldar. He does a lot with different ferments and vinegars and things that will have those live cultures in them. Because a lot of the times when we're trying to work with the nervous system, it is so directly interconnected with the digestive system that it can be difficult to separate the two and say, oh, well, I'm just working with the nervous system. If we're also working with the digestive system and trying to create more balance with probiotics and or these fermented foods and that kind of thing, then we end up in a scenario where the gut is making the right chemicals that help to support the brain and the rest of the nervous system. And it is easier to harness the neuroplasticity that exists in our brain. And it's easier for us to rewire and find a place where we feel like we're really thriving. The other aspect to this is the immune system. So one of the things we see a lot is that people will end up with autoimmune issues after going through severe trauma, distress, long periods of survival mode. And 
this is very much, there's a lot of like very specific things that we can talk about when it comes to different autoimmune situations. But one of the big things that I talk about in the book is inflammation. And there is a lot of anti-inflammatory herbs out there. Turmeric is, is one that a lot of people love. There's the anti-inflammatory diet that Dr. Andrew Wheel is really strong to discuss. But I will say that one of the biggest things to me is that if people will try to add more fruits and veggies into their diet, just adding an extra helping of vegetables to each meal, eating the rainbow where you're eating different colored fruits and veggies gets you some of the different antioxidants. Both the antioxidants and the fiber that you get from whole fruits and veggies can make a significant difference for both the inflammation levels and your digestive tract and what's happening with your gut microbiome. Yeah, so much there. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I just want to highlight, you know, by just kind of repeating a little bit, a few of the things that you said that I think are very important. One being this connection between the digestive system and the nervous system. You know, when we talk about things, we have to have a way to talk about issues, right? So right, we right. break them up into systems and but truly we're an organism, right? So um, yeah, a lot of times coming at things from different angles um, and especially, I mean, that relationship is very particularly strong. And, um, and you know, maybe if we can't quite get to the nervous system, when the digestive system is running better and it can kind of tell our nervous system that we're okay. So sometimes, you know, there's different ways to approach the, you know, the same goal, which is that, that healing. Exactly. And inflammation. I mean, that's such a big one. I think many of us deal with that. And the, the research on inflammation is just um, extensive and getting that down is just super important. And again, even for our quality of, of thought, right? right. Um, it's going to help so much. So, um, very, very helpful information there. So it, another framework that you look at in the book that um, a lot of my yoga friends will surely relate to and love is our herbs for the gunas. So maybe you could share that framework and how you think about that when you're working with your clients. For sure. So there are the three gunas that we think about when we're thinking about kind of the nature of the mind. And, and this comes into play in other ways as well. But for the purposes of our conversation, we're talking about it from like the angle of how someone's mind works. And this is really interesting. There's a lot of different conversations in the Ayurvedic world. I am studying to be an Ayurvedic practitioner, should be finished this year. I said that last year, but here we are. <laughs> and um, one of the things that comes up a lot is these three gunas, and they are tamas, rajas, and sattva. Tamas is a very steady, almost heavy energy, whereas rajas is the movement. It's It's the excitement and the movement. And then we have sattva, which is almost like a harmonious energy. And I bring this up in the book because it almost parallels the three polyvagal theory states. I was like thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tamas is very much parallel to the dorsal vagal state, that kind of shut down 
And we need stillness. We need the ability to be still at times. We need the ability to slow down in that moment. We don't want it to take over. So Thomas is that piece. Rajas is that exciting energy, the the almost fiery type energy that comes with a lot of momentum. It is very much parallel with sympathetic fight or flight. And then sattva is that harmonious place that we think of when we think of the ventral vagal state. And so they don't, they don't quite perfectly align. Like there's some differences in the way that different people describe them, but there is a little bit of a parallel there. And so when we talk about sattvic foods, and this is very, like, there's a lot more nuance. Again, there's so many different ways we can talk about this. But when we talk about sattvic foods, we're usually talking about very fresh foods. We're talking about things that are kind of whole foods. We're back to the whole eating more fruits and veggies, that kind of conversation. Mm. But we don't live only for sattva. We do have rajas and tamas. If we didn't have rajas and tamas, there would be no existence. And so to me, one of the beauties of noticing this and seeing these ancient traditions who in many of these traditions, they already have described these things from a more spiritual standpoint or from a more allegorical standpoint, recognizing that it's always been there and seeing the different ways that people have described it to me is very powerful because it can create a slightly different view on what we're looking at, really. I mean, like if you're hearing the stories from different healing systems and things like that, it can really help to allow something to slide into place that maybe wasn't there before. And I think when I finally heard somebody talk about the gunas in parallel with polyvagal theory, that's where it really clicked for me was like, we're not trying to get rid of the other states, right? We're not trying to get rid of our fight or flight response. There is a time and a place where that is helpful There's a time and a place where we want that either because we're playing a game or because we need to know there is a danger. And we're not trying to get rid of the dorsal vagal shutdown response. There's a time and a place for those feelings. We want to be able to hold them all in a more comfortable setting. And so that's really like a lot of this work comes Mm. to a place. And like with your somatics work and things like this, I feel like you, you know what I'm talking about when I say a lot of this work is more about getting to a point where we have just a little bit more room for just a little bit more of a breath, a little bit more room to allow our body to settle. Maybe we are feeling something big, but we're also feeling our feet on the floor. Yeah. And it's such a good point that you make in the book in another way that really stuck with me, which is like that one of the big mistakes that sometimes you know, wellness professionals, I think you're talking specifically about herbalists, you know, they come in and try to make all this change at once too fast, right? I don't know if it's because we think we need to prove ourselves to the, you know, especially when we're in more of these fields that are not as, what's the right word, you know, not as approved by the general culture, right? Right, right. And which is another thing we have to get into because your call for research is just amazing (laughs) because we want that, right? We want them to come into like a common, you know, as you would go to this doctor, you would go to your herbalist, right? right? Because we know it works. So maybe we try to over 
prove ourselves or some maybe some ego comes into it. But I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit and maybe your system of, you know, starting with, I think you called it like a cocoon state and, and how you work with someone in a slow pace. For sure. So one of the things we have to recognize as practitioners, and, and really for those of you laypersons who are listening to this, we can't just take a huge leap from where we are to where we want to be. There are steps. It is a journey. I know we overuse the term journey. I know that's a thing. But like it really is at its core, one little step at a time. And one of the things that I have noticed over the, gosh, 15 years of this, <laughs> like, I was just thinking about it the other day. And, and yeah, it's it's been almost 15 years over that time of trying to heal and, and studying and understanding things. I can see how far I've come now. But when I first started, the day-to-day progress is so slow (laughs) that you begin to think you're not doing anything at all. Like there's this frustration that can build if you start trying to see, you know, results immediately. And I do think that there is a piece of us as practitioners of these, you know, complementary therapies, these integrative techniques that, or alternative therapies, because in some cases, Mm -hmm. that's what people are still working with. But when we're in that state, we are, there is like a feeling of like, well, I have to prove that this is going to work. Or there may be this overwhelming empathy that we have for what somebody's dealing with. And we just, we just know if we can just get them to do all of this stuff, it'll fix it. It also comes to our own, again, what we were, it's full circle. What we were talking about before about being able to sit with, exactly, you know, someone not being well or not being what we think of as well and and being with that right Right. before moving on to um some perceived state of what wellness looks like exactly and i've heard you talk about this with like the emotional safety and kind of creating holding space for people to be able to feel what they're feeling and be able to experience what they're experiencing without us telling us it needs to be different Yeah, that comes into play here. Yeah, I mean, that really comes into play here because and I have clients that I struggle because I'm just like, oh, gosh, like this is so much. And I just want to give you everything at once, because if you just do this for a week, it'll be, you know, but people aren't at that place. And so and it's not that they're ever going to be at that place. It's not like something to aspire to when I say they're not at that place. If you've got kids, your kids are going to take priority. If you work a job, you can't all of a sudden spend 80 hours a week doing all these exercises and doing this or that, you know, and bills and inflation have hit people hard. Like, I can't expect you to spend a thousand dollars a month on supplements. Like, we have to look at where somebody is Hmm. and we have to say, what are reasonable options that can start helping a person move more towards where they want to be? And I'm in this uh, Dr. Peter Levine's somatic experiencing program. And one of the things he talks about, and he's talking about it from the angle of processing the somatic experience that somebody's having. He talks about titration, just like a small amount of work and then coming back to a place that feels very safe and then just titrating just a little bit and then coming back. 
And I've really tried to apply that in the work that I do with clients, because if I can give them just a little bit, almost to the point where it almost doesn't feel like they're doing anything, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, okay, you just want me to drink a cup of tea every day for this next week? Sure, I can do that. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't feel like this like overwhelming hero's journey that they have to go on, then it becomes more accessible. Yeah, and then one day they look that. back and they've been through their hero's journey, but it wasn't. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, "Wait a minute! What, what, did you, what happened? <laughs> I didn't even know it was happening." Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, I love that. I think that's really important, and um, you know, it struck me. I was just thinking about oh, just like th- what you were saying earlier about you know that wanting these different states, you know, not that we're not trying to get rid of all of our, our ability to, you know, respond and react and go into fight or flight. And I think this, this part of the conversation is also related to that because sometimes we go into that like over fixing mode. Right. And we have an idea of what like peaceful, well people look like. Right. Right. Yeah. No. And, and I can even speak to that from Like, I have a very rajistic mind talking about Tamas, Rajas, and Sattva again, right? My mind is fiery. I am already thinking about my day before I ever open my eyes in the morning. And my husband is very Tamasic in that way. Do not talk to him until he's had 45 minutes, has walked around the house a few times, and had a cup of coffee. Like, he's just... That's just his energy. That's where his mind is. That's how it works. And he's more brilliant than I could ever dream of being. But he has that tamasic quality that he has to kind of shake off first thing in the morning. That's not going to ever change. I'm not going to one day wake up and be in this perfect sattvic state of bliss where my mind just floats around exactly how we think of as being perfect, you know, perfect harmony with the universe. Yeah. Yeah. But, but where I am, when I wake up, if I feel that Rajas and it feels like a flow, if it feels like an inspired state, then I am in the right place for me. If I wake up and I feel tension with that Rajas or I feel overwhelmed by what's coming up with my natural Raja state. Now I'm out of alignment and I need to do things to help me get back into balance. It's very much a matter of like not trying to deny your true nature. You're trying to learn how to live with it in such a way that allows you to express yourself and be a beautiful part of, of others experience as well as your own. Yes. Yeah. Like working with your nature. Right. That's wonderful. And the other point with that, like if I can just tell a client, you know, have this one cup of tea every day, at least for the beginning, you know, it it relates so much to something that, that I teach, which is about something that we can do regularly, however small it is, is going to be more powerful than doing this one big thing keeping it up for one day, right? Important right now or at the beginning of the year, you know, what is the slow and steady approach that really builds up over time to lasting change? 
Exactly. And there is a, there's a huge dopamine rush talking about, you know, we're, we're recording this on like the third, right? <laughs> so third of right. January, of course, it feels like we're in that everybody's setting resolutions and resolutions can be a good thing in the right situation, but there's a dopamine rush to planning things. There's, yeah. there's something that can really pump somebody up with, oh, I'm going to go do all this stuff and it's going to be amazing. and I'm going to come out of it and blah, blah, blah. And there's a real temptation sometimes to go there with ourselves and say, I'm going to get all this done. It's going to be great. And then when reality sets in, (laughs) it's like, oh, this is not working this way. And then it can even bring shame, Mm, you know? So then we chase the dopamine again and then we end up Mm. back in shame. Whereas if we have these small things like what you're talking about and we're doing these consistent actions slowly but surely, it doesn't have the same kind of Broadway worthy swelling of emotion and excitement. But all of a sudden, one day things have shifted a little bit in our world. I love how you how you talk about it as a dopamine rush. I hadn't <laughs> thought of it that way, but it definitely is. Oh, it's it definitely yeah, is. No. <laughs> yeah. Guilty. <laughs> yeah. Speaking from experience. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, Elizabeth, you are a, a true practitioner of so many different oh. modalities. I didn't realize that you were studying under Peter Levine and doing all that somatic work. It's beautiful how you bring all these practices together in such a a holistic way. It obviously helps you to see the herbs and the, and the person from so many different angles. I think that's just fantastic. I want to ask you about two plants before we go. And then a little bit about for folks, how to find you and work with you and, and also your call for the future of herbalism. So First, I had to ask you about a very popular plant in the yoga world, herb, which is ashwagandha. <laughs> yes, ashwagandha. Why is it so big for yogis? <laughs> so they all think ashwagandha. This, this reminds me of the St. John's work craze of the early aughts, right? Like, okay. Yeah, everybody was like, oh, you got to take St. John's work for your depression. Like back in the early 2000s, that was a huge thing. This, I think, is a result of really good marketing. Okay. Uh, I, I really, truly believe that. Now, now, ashwagandha is amazing in the right circumstances. It can be very soothing. So if you have that fight or flight, sympathetic, jittery type feeling, then ashwagandha may be something that you really want to try out. But there are other options. Shatavari is a little less known of an option. Or holy basil is an amazing option. And in Ayurveda, holy basil is called tulsi. And it is a very balancing plant. It has a lot of potential, talking about the research, like there's a lot of potential that I hope that can be researched at some point for how it could help people. We talk about it a lot from like blood sugar angle, but there's also like psychological benefits that could come from some of its constituents. So I see that as being a really beneficial one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, ashwagandha is fantastic. It's a great option. I will say that one of the things I find is that sometimes it'll say ashwagandha on the bottle and then you'll look at the actual label and it'll have other things in it. Like it might mm-hmm. have rhodiola or some of the other adaptogenic herbs. It's so good to know. Yeah. yeah. So like if you're in a situation where you're kind of coming out of those trauma responses and you're a little bit more sensitive to things, those types of 
supplements might not work. You may want to find just ashwagandha by itself. Yeah, that's a really good pointer. And if you, you know, read Elizabeth's book, you'll get into a little bit more about these phases, the cocooning, and then moving into the adaptogens. I'll leave people with that as a teaser. (laughs) (laughs) One more herb I wanted to ask you about is is a plant that I just love and have been working with a lot over the last years, which is dandelion, because I feel like everyone can find a dandelion. Dandelion is a movement herb. Like to me, dandelion is one of these things that if you want to really get your energy moving from that more kind of etheric spiritual angle, dandelion Mm. is a great plant. The new leaves in early spring, like the baby leaves, can be really good in a salad. The root can be roasted and put into a lot of these more earthy teas and it can be really tasty, great for the liver. The entire plant can be eaten. That's one thing I love about yes, it. <laughs> yes. And you can use the whole plant. <laughs> and it's everywhere. It is everywhere. And this is something Pascal Baldar gets into this, into some of his work. We talked about him with fermentation earlier. But we live surrounded by edible plants. And now this is not, I don't get as far into foraging as a lot of people do. But if you have a good herbalist in your area that knows your local foraging, like what's available around you, I encourage you to get hooked up with them and go on a couple of plant walks to see what's edible in your area. Because there are a lot of things around us that can be very helpful, very beneficial, and they can connect you to your local land. Connecting to the land, connecting to your local plants can be some of the most centering and balancing energies you know, we've talked a lot about clinical stuff. It's amazing. There's a lot of cool things. And I, hey, I didn't get into the, the two phases, the cocoon and, and the processing. But, but like if you are doing nothing else, learning more about the land that you live on, the history of the indigenous people, especially here in America, and also the plants that currently inhabit it and f- like really connecting with those energies can make a very big difference on your healing journey. So well said. I mean, grounding and where we are, right, anyway. Yes. And that's just a very visceral way to do it. And and you gain so much respect and confidence. Yes. You know, (laughs) when you can look around and be able to identify, and I'm speaking from my own experience now, like just being on this journey a few years, and I did not grow up with, you know, a, a family with herb gardens, and it was all very scary to me, yeah, frankly. And and just going on a couple of those plant walks, which I have, and getting an idea of what I'm likely to see and being able to identify even a few basic plants, it really builds confidence. Exactly. You know, knowledge of the world <laughs> that we're and the land that, that we're um, in relationship with. So such a big point. We talked a lot about teas, Elizabeth. I wonder, and I know this could be a whole side topic. We don't have too much time, but could you share briefly? I feel like this could be a hard thing to share briefly, but maybe like the difference between teas and tinctures and can we do rubs or creams or um, burning these plants? Maybe a brief overview. I know we can't go too deep, but it would be cool to know about that. Sure. So a lot of the times I start people, especially in this kind of conversation, talking about teas, because teas are a weaker form of extract than tinctures. 
So if something is not setting well with you, it won't be as strong of a response. And then you can just try a different tea, which is why I talk about that a lot. But we do have these things called tinctures. And if you work with a clinical herbalist, they're probably going to talk to you about this tincture or that tincture. And that is an alcoholic extract. So traditionally, there are other ways to do this. But again, traditionally, tinctures would be you would put the plant matter in a jar. You'd pour over it with usually vodka, though I'll be honest, I'm partial to brandy for all of this. (laughs) And it's super tasty. (laughs) But if you're trying to learn the taste of the herbs, you do it with vodka. And then you shake it every day, maybe a couple of times a day for about two weeks. And then you strain the plant material out of it and you have a tincture. These alcoholic tinctures are a lot stronger than a tea. Besides the fact that it's been sitting in it for two weeks, alcohol helps to extract certain things that just a basic tea won't necessarily extract as well. And then if there's somebody who does not use alcohol, we have this extract called a glycerite which is vegetable glycerin and water combined. Usually you're heating it up. There's a couple of plants that I don't like rose petals, but usually you're heating it up. And then it's a liquid extract, kind of like a tincture, not quite as strong, but still pretty strong. And it's sweet tasting. So you have the tinctures and the glycerites are stronger, kind of more medicinal quality when compared to a tea. So you're only taking a few drops to maybe a dropper full of a tincture. They last a lot longer, so you can hang on to them for years a lot of the times and still get the benefits out of them. We also have topical applications, like you were mentioning, with salves and lotions, and that can be great for plants that you can't take internally. It can also be a good way to use some of the essential oils that are safe to be used topically, which is we could have a whole nother conversation about my aromatherapy work. Yes, we'll have to. <laughs> yeah. um, but there's all these different ways that you can do that. And then you can also just, and this is getting a little esoteric, but if you're not sure if you could take something, if you're not sure if you should take something, because some plants are endangered, there's concerns around that. You can also commune with the energy of a plant and kind of like work with it like you might a tree and kind of get to know it. And a lot of the times there can be wisdom in that aspect as well. So there's all these different options available. There's all kinds of different ways that you can take plants or use them topically. And the smudging, like you're talking about with with burning plants, like there's options to make incense or to burn different plants. Lavender and rosemary can make amazing incense type burning options. So there's all kinds of different Mm -hmm. ways that you can play with this and find the things that work for you specifically. I love that. And we'll we'll tease another episode on aromatherapy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting very nice bath images right now. Uh, Very calming. We're in construction. So I've been waiting for my bath to be done. And hopefully (laughs) by the time this episode is out. I won't be snuggling up warm because it has been a journey. Elizabeth, you have so much knowledge. Wow. Thank you. Let's tell people, first of all, there's a call in your book for more research. I don't know if you want to be a part of a research project. I couldn't tell, but it, (laughs) it, you know, I want to put out there. I am (laughs) always up for that. Yeah. So, you know, maybe there is someone, you know, working out of a, one of these, you know, higher up educational facilities, that wants to get involved in a research project with you. I would love that. So I actually was doing 
I was helping to create research at the integrative medicine clinic at UAB Hospital and had been in an internship there for a little over a year before the pandemic shut down the in-person work we were doing. And then our director actually moved out of state for another opportunity. So it that work has fizzled out. But I love being able to work on that kind of project where we're looking at research and looking at how we can apply this from that, the more evidence-based practices. And of course, evidence-based medicine, I do not believe that that is the end-all be-all. There are other aspects that we are never going to be able to capture appropriately in evidence-based medicine. But I think there is reason to want to study this further. And I am happy for anybody to reach out to me and talk about it or brainstorm with me or whatever. Like, I love being able to talk those kinds of topics. Yeah, I think that is one of the themes of this year. (laughs) Because who I just had on before you is Dave Emerson, who coined the term trauma-sensitive yoga and is one of the leading folks in research of trauma-sensitive yoga. My organization, Three and a Half Acres Yoga, is currently working on a research project. So it's the year of research and I'm putting that out there for you and for the whole spectrum of folks who believe in herbs and would like to see more, you know, evidence coming through. And, you know, a lot of doors open when we do get that research. So, you know, as far as insurance and as far as accessibility and increasing our knowledge. So I'm putting that out there for you. (laughs) And how can people reach you if they want to get in touch with you for that, or if they want to work with you, or if they want to get your book, shout out your book, all your websites and your social media (laughs) handles. Yes. So my work is mostly concentrated at traumainformedherbalist.com. You can find my book at Amazon, pretty much anywhere books are sold. It's The Trauma-Informed Herbalist. And I actually have a second book that came out this last year called Essential Oils for Trauma, which is more into the aromatherapy side. But The Trauma-Informed Herbalist is kind of a good starting point for my work. But you can find my contact information, my socials, everything on the website, traumainformedherbalist.com. Wonderful. And um, we will link all of that in the show notes. I will certainly be reading your other book. And I enjoyed the the first book so much. (laughs) Is there anything that I didn't ask you, we didn't get to that you want to drop in before we say goodbye? Oh, wow. We've we've covered so much. And I'm, I'm honored to be able to be here and communicate this with everyone. I think the main thing here is there are so many options. It can feel very overwhelming. But if you just take a little bit at a time and if you listen to what your body needs and begin honoring that a little bit more every day, you mm-hmm. will find your healing path. No, oh, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land.